Each episode of Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain with Dr. Ruth Allen is for educational and demonstration purposes only. The information shared in each episode should not be interpreted as medical advice. This episode should not be used to self-diagnose or self-treat any health, medical or physical condition. Do not use this episode to avoid going to your healthcare professional or to replace the advice they give you. Consult with a trusted healthcare professional before doing anything contained in this episode. If you have any questions or concerns, please contact www.ruthmaryallen.com forward slash connect. Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I am really excited to talk to the wonderful Grayson Hart. Welcome to the show, Grayson. Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. Amazing to be here. Oh, you're most welcome. And I know we met at the Water Cooler Stroke SME Expo event in London recently and got chatting there and you uh, you gave a talk and uh, on your new company that you founded, which was really inspiring. So I'm excited to learn more about your journey that got you to where you are today, um, but particularly in the context of brain health. So um, I'd love to know what you are passionate about in life right now. Yeah, I think what I'm most passionate about is understanding and sharing that understanding uh, with people around optimal human performance. And what I mean when I say optimal human performance is, you know, the the ability to function well, be happy, be healthy, uh, enjoy being productive, and you know, be able to apply ourselves to our passions and and also face like the inevitable challenges that life will bring. That's that's what I call human performance. And I'm I'm really passionate about evolving my understanding and then sharing that with other people. Yeah, do you know I think it's so important that we think about optimal performance because often we think about peak performance which which tends to suggest that it comes in a high and then you hit a low but optimal mm. performance is about con- seeking to uh, consistently perform yeah. at your best that's what i see it as and get the best out of what you have is that yeah. what you would say is for you personally yeah absolutely my, my life before this was yeah, before pure sport was a professional rugby player um, and that's all about like the performance and the outcome in terms of like a tangible result and it's like you live week by week and season by season and what I'm talking about when I say optimal human performance is the fact that living well and being happy and healthy is for everybody and and I really want to emphasize that it's about being happy and healthy and when I say happy I don't mean like just always continuously like joyful that's not how I would explain happiness what I mean is a a level of like contentment and resilience up to life and and I think I wanted to emphasize what I mean by human optimal human performance because we're really trying to push that this is for everybody and and it should take place in a way of what is true to you rather than like what someone else's optimal performance looks like and I agree with you, you know, like when you hear like optimal or or peak performance, it's usually got this connotation towards, you know, like elite athletes or like, you know, big CEOs or entrepreneurs who'd live these lifestyles where they're up at like 4.45 and they got these crazy routines and all this stuff. Whereas actually what we're saying is like finding ways to, for you to live 
a, a better life. And yeah. it's not necessarily about any outcome. It's about that that day, one day at a time. Yeah, and I love the f- fact that you focus on you and it's all about the individual. So what would you say optimal brain health is for you personally in the context of your life's journey? Yeah, I think optimal brain health for me is the mind functioning in a way that you can apply yourself to challenging tasks with with full application, but also be able to switch off and be present and be peaceful in in the times that you need to. And that's one of the challenges I'm finding as as a startup um, founder and and CEO is that's a challenge to be able to know when when to switch off and how to incorporate that into like my routine and, and have that discipline. And, and also the understanding that we've probably all got beliefs and like cultural or conditioning that maybe no longer serves us and how we can kind of like evolve our outlook on life to yeah, function in a, in a more positive way to, you know, for ourselves, our families, our friends, our society. That would be a, a good way of describing it from my perspective. No, I I think that's really important. And I think, you know, talking about the societal impact of our, how society has an impact on our brain health and the cultural aspects that influence how our brain performs and how we can optimise it can can have a huge impact on, on our cognitive performance. And I think it's really important that we take cognizance of that. Is there, could you take us back to a time when you haven't felt that your brain was performing optimally, if you take us back on your journey? Yeah, I've got many times, uh, <laughs> most days, but um, that's all part of why we're interested in this topic, aren't we? But again, I say it because I, I do believe no matter who you are and what you achieve and what you do, it, it's always a journey. It's never like a final destination of like, I'm optimised now, I get it. You know, it's it's a constant evolution of understanding. But there's a couple times that like stand out to me really clearly in my life. Probably when I got to around the age of 13, 14, you know, I'd always been a student who, who really loved sport and excelled more than that. But I would get really excited also about like doing well in school. And that was sort of more few and further between when I'd do well in the education side of things. But I would be, I really wanted to do well. And it wasn't until probably when I got to around the age 12 or 13 that I, I realised that I was really struggling to stay engaged with the lessons and, and adhere to, you know, the, the, the curriculum and start to get in a lot of trouble, getting sent out of class, you know, distracting my classmates or answering back to the teacher. And that was Could a Could you just describe of... that a bit more? I just want to pause you there because I'm sure a lot of parents that are listening can relate yeah. to this. Um, yeah. So what what were the sort of key things you mentioned? You were struggling to stay engaged. You were answering back. You yeah. were were you trying to cause trouble or? Yeah, I do. That's... I definitely think because because I was a kid that I so badly wanted that uh, like validation from people. Um, okay. I grew up in a household that you know my my parents were separated. I had a, quite a tough upbringing. My uh, I was raised by my dad and he had a lot of addiction issues. Mm-hmm. So I do think there was, although he had a lot of love and kindness, I think there was definitely kind of probably a lack of like real engagement in terms of like quality communication. And I do think on reflection, looking back, obviously wasn't aware of all this stuff at the time, but with a lot of like introspection and looking back on, on the past and these things, 
I do think there was a real cry for like, I wanted that attention and I wanted that pat on the back and I wanted that like adult human communication. And I think as I started to not get it in school or and I started to get the opposite, you know, if I wasn't doing well, uh, I think my protection mechanism was to kind of push back against them or, oh, well, then, you know, well, if you don't like me, so what, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I remember that being my feeling. And that was tough because I'd gone from a kid up to that point who I just really wanted to do well. And I think you can't expect the, all the curriculums in the schools to understand every child's background or challenges. Mm-hmm. They've got bloody so many children that they're dealing with. And yeah, I do think resistance towards the teachers definitely like the protective mechanism of not failing was to not try okay because you didn't want to be seen as a failure so the best thing was to not try at all and i don't think it was even a conscious viewpoint it was more i'd gone i really had always wanted that pat on the back and then i knew that i wasn't going to get it i would put up a wall of like well i don't care anyway protect yourself and then that would obviously cause conflict in the classrooms uh, and, and distraction and answering back to the teachers mm-hmm. or just not trying and disturbing people around me, getting kicked out of class. And then you get labelled as a bad kid, you know. Which you're not, actually, in yeah. this context, because yeah. you're just wanting some quality time and attention yeah. and some nurturing from yeah. the people that you see as the nurturing entity in the school and and unfortunately, they weren't able to provide yeah. it to you. So you had to put up your barriers and protect yourself because yeah. you weren't getting what you needed. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I was got at that point in time and I, I had no idea of any of these things. But I was later on in life diagnosed with ADHD. And mm-hmm. so therefore, like a lot of those behaviours and, and troubles to engage and apply myself kind of makes sense in that regard but I think also you know I, I don't know I'm not a, at all a specialist or expert in mm-hmm. you know the studies and these things but they say there's some studies that have gone on and, and viewpoints from experts that you know that lack of engagement from a young age in terms of like communication and sort of levels of you know neglect can often start to create the uh, formulation of ADHD in, in, mm-hmm. in the so yeah I do feel quite passionately now and I wish I could do more but I guess speaking on a podcast like this and sharing my experience is a small part but I do feel strongly that the the systems of education aren't designed to understand that there are very there there are real varying ways of of functioning you know there there's neurodiversity is but throughout everybody. And I think the curriculum and the schooling system is designed for, you know, people that function in, in what may be regarded as more of a, um, you know, classical, normal way, but, but people that yeah. maybe things like ADHD or, or other um, neurodiversities, the, the system and the majority, in my experience anyway, of schools is not designed to kind of work with them. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And, I'd, you know, I think we've grown up historically in a very, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, dictatorial school system where thou shalt do as you're taught. Mm. Um, and it hasn't been necessarily conducive to how our brains evolve as children. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, it's particularly if you take teenagers, is t- the teenage brain needs sleep and does mm. not function 
early in the morning but the school mm. systems are you know programmed for you to get up at the same time as you would have done when mm. you're a younger child uh, and to have your brain turned on and working optimally from from the the, the get-go and that's not mm. that's just not how teenage brains work whatever type of brain you have it's you're just not programmed to do that because you're going through a huge developmental um stage as you also would have been at you know into age 13 you would have been going through into puberty um where all of your hormones would have been kicking up a gear so your your you know your courage <laughs> would have probably been flowing quite strongly um yeah. in the context of answering back because because yeah. all of that testosterone was flowing into your system so yeah. i i don't you know i do agree with you that we've the mm. the system has not evolved in the context of our now understanding of how our brains work yeah. uh, and made adjustments uh, yeah. according to to our co cognitive function and to get the best performance out of children at school yeah. um including isn't it because there are so many unbelievably talented enthusiastic energized creative young children and the saddest thing for me is they a lot of them think they're stupid yeah you know and it's because the system is designed for you to learn in a certain way and if you don't you're it's not said to you directly, but like you get the feeling that you're a failure and that you don't, you're not, you don't know how to do it, and therefore, you know, you're you're stupid. Yeah. And for a long, long time, and even I still have this conditioning in me that I'm 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 always working to overcome and move forward from. But still to this day, like I have strong conditioning in me that says I'm stupid or I can't do that, I, I can't figure that out, I won't be able to learn that new thing. But also what I'm really thankful for is amazing people around me uh, who have also encouraged me to understand that I, I do have a really high-performing intellect that operates and sees things in maybe different ways or, or functions and has strengths in different ways that weren't as well aligned to the schooling system. Mm -hmm. But what's so sad to me is there are so many people that haven't been able to go along a journey like that and get to a point where you know you know me starting a business and the creative ideas and the ways of bringing it to life and the visions that i have can be seen as a strength of, mm -hmm. of how i work there are so many people that went through a similar journey to to what i did in the schooling system and they've gone on to live a life that reflects that you know feeling like a failure and feeling stupid mm -hmm. and not good enough and that to me is honestly it's it's so sad to me because yeah. those are lives that they could have been some of the greatest business people, uh, artists, uh, politicians, uh, you know, so many different amazing strengths they could have brought out, but they were pointed down a path of, oh, you know, you, you're, you're, not, you're not very smart. Yeah. And actually the reality is you're not conforming to the system or the society that mm. has been created um around you that isn't a, for you or about you but it it's just not working for you if that makes sense no, absolutely. because it's not tailored to your your brain type yeah um, no, absolutely and then i and i think it's a real strength to be able to question things and not necessarily just take everything at face value or believe it just because that's what everyone else believes 
and often again having views like that the, the wanting the want to understand something rather than just take it as a fact you know that's not a, that i don't feel that's necessarily enc encouraged to be able to challenge or question things you know i remember in school i used to always question like oh but why do we need to learn that like or what why you know why is that important um and it wasn't really encouraged to ask those types of questions. Yeah, when you're young, like I have a four-year-old daughter, that's all they do. Because <laughs> they want to know. They want to have justification for doing things. Why, 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 why? Yeah. Um, and at some point in our lives through school, we're yeah. told to stop asking questions and to be quiet, which is very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Um... <laughs> I agree with you. It's it's amazing to me, young, young children. I feel we can learn so much from them and, and their outlook in, in life. And and unfortunately, like a lot of the ways in which our culture has worked, it, it, it kind of is designed to like almost stamp that out of children along the way. So maybe we as adults, we can look to them more to kind of go back to an outlook on life that might serve us more than the one that we kind of gained along the way. Yeah, and I we had Steve Sims on the podcast not so long ago, and he, his books are called Go for Stupid, and it's all about asking stupid questions and pushing for the things that people don't think are achievable because you because no one else is going to do that. Uh, yeah. And when you've got the courage and commitment and the resilience and the willingness to risk take extraordinary things can happen and you're you're proof of that through um you know being a ceo of your own company so i'd love to know where your journey led you from the 13 year old being told uh that you're you're you know you're causing problems as it were um to stepping into the rugby space how, how did that evolve yeah i mean it was a pretty colorful journey um from that sort of age 13 onwards um yeah I, I did get into a lot of trouble it kind of compounded and got worse and believing I was a bad kid I, I really quite started to believe it but I, I also had this feeling and deep intuition that I knew I was good like I had a good yeah. heart I really loved like pleasing people and you know like I, I, I had good manners and I was polite and but I was also I believed I was kind of naughty and not that smart and um I kind of had that chip on my shoulder and mm -hmm. and I was drawn then to hang around with other kids that kind of had that view and as you get a bit older you know when you start drinking and going to parties and these things with that crowd you're much more inclined to be getting into trouble and um yeah drinking from a very early age very regularly that was something that I was heavily involved in probably from the age of like 15 14 mm -hmm. onwards and time I grew up in the area I grew up in Auckland um like fighting was it was just a really standard part of our kind of like neighborhood and culture mm -hmm. really unfortunately at that time and combine that with drinking and not you know being not of age to be able to handle alcohol properly and and you know probably some traumas that I've gone through in the past as to mm -hmm. you know maybe why I probably had a bit more aggression or anger in me mm -hmm. um, with maybe some of the issues I had with my family growing my you know growing up with my dad with addiction mm -hmm. and, and these things um I would oh yeah I was getting into a lot of trouble 
getting into a lot of fights. I got arrested on quite a few occasions and throughout high school for fighting. You know, I remember being so ashamed when my dad would have to pick me up from the um, cells that I'd get put in for fighting. And then one, still one of the most shameful experiences of my life was I had to go to court for um, getting into a fist fight with uh, a guy at a party and just sat through the court throughout the whole day and saw all these criminals um, and you it's a public court and you have to sit and wait for your turn. And I just remember being, you know, like I'd, I'd let my dad my, and my dad down who, who he had tried to make his life better to have a better life for us kids and overcome his, his challenges and I remember just feeling, yeah, so down and heartbroken about that that I, I really wanted to overcome that. And that was when I started to look at rugby as a, as a really good opportunity for me. I wasn't doing well in school at all. Mm-hmm. And I started to get to the age where I was like, I want to do something good with my life. I don't want to go down this path of, you know, becoming a criminal or in some type of gang, and which is unfortunately in my neighbourhood what a lot of kids went down who were similar to me. And... Rugby was something that I was excelling at. I, I truly loved rugby. Uh, it was a, one of the few places in my life that I felt like a sense of belonging and a sense of achievement and also like a sense of freedom when I was out there and, and happiness. Um, and, yeah, I, I identify, I still remember, I had this moment when I was maybe like 17. I was like, oh, school's finishing soon. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, I could you know, get a job, try and maybe get a job like the Ports of Auckland. That's where my, my dad had worked previously. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't something that was very aspirational. And I said, and I remember I said to myself, I want to become a professional rugby player. And from that moment onwards, like everything I did was aligned to achieving that goal. But the other part of that challenge was I had this idea in my mind when I had that thought that when I achieve that goal, I'm going to be... I'm going to feel okay for the first time. Like, okay. And I think most people in life can probably understand that happiness and feeling good and feeling content about yourself doesn't come from an outcome. You need to like develop it within yourself. But That's I the have... peak performance versus optimal. Yeah, exactly. And it was all geared to this outcome. So it was, it was almost like this is going to save my life um, and it's going to make me of value to this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, gonna make me like good enough and I truly like was so driven towards that goal because I was like I just want to feel good enough and I I remember I got my first contract for my team that I grew up supporting and team that I loved was the Auckland Blues and that was a huge deal at the time because in New Zealand we love rugby there's only five professional teams so if you make it like you're doing very well and I got a contract at the age of 19 for the first time almost unheard of um so I went from being feeling like a failure and getting arrested in school and feeling, you know, this this life that was not very good. To I was on the newspaper and I was playing rugby on TV and I had people around me for the first time being like, wow, like people started to treat me differently, you know, like I was yeah. special. And all of that was quite a shock to the system because I'd never experienced that. And I was, to be honest, I, a lot of it I was really lapping it up, but I also felt, what would you say, like, imposter syndrome because yeah. so was I good enough to be there mm-hmm. I was doubting myself but the biggest challenge was I felt so confused because I got my contract everything that I ever gone 
for since that moment. Yeah. And it was a dream come true, but I didn't feel fulfilled. I didn't feel happy or that, that what that I thought that I was going to feel. And that was confusing for me. Um, so that led me into a bit of a challenge again. And I started after games reverting back to drinking and these things. And um, what was the reason for the drink? Was it to kind of, was it an escape mechanism? Was it a numbing mechanism? What Because we, we all use, often people, mm -hmm. I used to use drink as, um, or self-medication as we call it. Um, mm -hmm to is often to escape or numb something what was it for you what did you use it for for yourself yeah i think it was a, a both it was an escape and a numbing um, okay i think it was it was also trying to fill a void because i tr i really went for that goal believing it was going to make me feel better about myself mm -hmm. and and when it didn't have come with that inner feeling of like peace or contentment i i didn't know where to find it because I was like, well, everything I've ever wanted was in this goal, and I can't, I'm not happy. So I, I think, you know, those short glimpses, you know, at the start of a night where you've, you have so much fun for the first, I don't know, half an hour or so, I, I think I was, I was living for those like moments of instant gratification. Um, and, Which you hadn't had as a child, you know? Yeah. So it's completely understandable that mm. you suddenly get something that you've been longing for since childhood yeah. and when you don't get it all the time because you've been deficient in it and suddenly yeah. you're like oh wow I've got it uh, yeah. and then it disappears yeah. you have to fill the void yeah. of what you know what of that feeling yeah no absolutely and so I, I, it was that and a combination of feeling like just not feeling good enough and okay. trying to escape that feeling because I think I wasn't able to, I, I never felt that I was performing to the level that I wanted to. And okay. that, would, that would ruminate in my mind a lot. And I was very hard on myself. Like if I'd make a mistake in the game, I would literally, it would just repeat in my brain and I would feel, and I would have negative self-talk and mm -hmm. all these kind of things. And so drinking would be my way to escape that. You know, like the same as you would put up the barriers when you were 13, you used you used your drink as a barrier. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, obviously it's pretty obvious now, but doing that as a way to escape it only compounded the, <laughs> and magnified the feelings of insecurity and ruminating on like negative thoughts. And um, so that started to not have a knock-on effect into you know training on monday i'll still be carrying those same like really heavy negative visualizations and self-talk and um because i'd obviously just escaped and suppressed it and then that combined with the anxiety of like a hangover and what that does to your brain and your body uh, only would sort of magnify and compound those issues and it wasn't long until my performance just started to go downhill you yeah. know um because of that and that then led to an even deeper escape because I still wasn't of enough awareness to understand what I, why and how to get out of the cycle. And then my dad passed away when I was 21, so two seasons in. And, yeah, that was, that was one of the toughest times of my life because also a big part of my like, drive to succeed was I, I really wanted to make my dad proud. So 
um, having seen him, you know, come to my games and, and watch me and be proud, that was a, a like a huge motivator for me. And I remember, you know, when I when he passed away, I was just like, so how do you say, like, just just like lost and confused. Um, and again, without having the ability to be aware of how I was coping um, at that time in my life, it just went on an even more negative, destructive cycle. Similar cycle to probably what I was in when I was in high school, when mm -hmm. I felt like a failure. Um, and yeah, I, I ended up getting into trouble again, going back to my old ways of getting into fights and mm -hmm. just overdoing everything um, with the drink and having like this anger that I was trying to suppress and upset against the world for taking away my dad and all this. I, that probably went on for about eight or nine months. I actually ended up getting fired from my team just for lack of performance and a couple things, fights I got into, got back to the club and they're like, the man, this guy, he doesn't care. He's not applying himself. Whereas back, actually you were grieving. Yeah, but uh, it was you know, because I lost my dad and it's a very long, the process is as long as it takes. Yeah, um, yeah. And especially when you have, you know, a very strong attachment to your parent and for mm -hmm. yourself as he was there as your, the person you wanted to make proud. Yeah. Um, when that extrinsic motivation that you had is taken away from you mm -hmm. um, and that has been your primary motivator for you getting to that next level or performing at the level that you are at is you know you have to find some replacement to it yeah. and that's not going to come quickly and you still have to go through the grieving process which is incredibly rocky mm -hmm. it's like being on a roller coaster and completely mm -hmm. understandable that your all of your natural uh, historic tendencies not necessarily natural historic tendencies of defending yourself and protecting yourself came to the fore because you your, your mindset was you your emotional brain was in the driving seat um your executive functioning part of your brain was not on um yeah. whether you wanted it on or not um because yeah. you were grieving and so yeah. your nat your natural responses will be driven by your the oldest part of your brain, which is your reptilian brain, um, yeah. where we instantly respond to things because that's how we survive, um, and we don't have the time to engage our executive function, the logical thinking. And so you're naturally going to get in trouble because you haven't had the time to reflect uh, yeah. and think and pause because your emotional brain was in the driving seat so very understandable that that you went yeah. through that that journey yeah no absolutely and I think one of the things as well that I realized is I think it's not it's not just me and I think men are more inclined to like suppress their feelings than to be able to communicate them and and if you can't even communicate your feelings or even like want to show that you are struggling it's so hard to get help you know mm -hmm. um or, or not even get help but find ways to help yourself because mm -hmm. you're literally not even wanting to accept it you know mm -hmm. uh, for yourself that you're struggling or that you're down or you're sad I, I remember i would just feel you know deep sadness or anger or and i just wouldn't want to take notice of it 
and mm -hmm. I'll just try and like push it to the side and like try to be be happy or I, I remember you know and I think a lot of people can relate to that if they've had a lot a loss of a loved one that's so close to them they almost like surprise themselves that they feel okay and it's often that we're probably not allowing the kind of grief to truly come through um and then it kind of for me it definitely uh, expressed itself in need, much more negative ways than just like allowing the grief to be felt mm. um and I think, yeah, just that ability to not be able to communicate or, or look for help or find ways to help myself. I mean, looking back, I, I would like professional sporting teams to probably have more of an ability to identify if an uh, individual within their team is struggling. And, you know, they knew I'd lost my dad. They knew I'd been, you know, caring for him at home uh, over six to eight months uh, outside of the time that I was training there but I don't know they didn't seem to have the ability or understanding to see that this was a huge part of why I was getting into all this trouble um but I, I wasn't able to either so I can't just point the finger um but actually uh, this experience of losing my dad and the pain and then getting fired from my my team which was my dream job this was the darkest time of my life but I can honestly say it went on to be one of the biggest blessings in my life because it was through that darkness that I had I, I, I actually remember it like I woke up one morning and I was hung over and it was just the same repetitive week in week out thing uh, and I woke up one morning I was hung over and I'd had a fight the night before and I was just feeling at like I used to try to deny and that it was a, such a big problem. And this one morning, I just couldn't deny it anymore. And I just felt so much darkness and like, and it made, and I just had this realization. I was like, I can't live this way anymore. I, I just, I need to accept that I need help and I can't, like, I can't live this way. And that was the first time that I actually reached out for help. And I remember uh, working with a, a doctor named Trevor, who um, he was a, neuroscientist by trade but he had gone into like um psychology like psychology and therapy and um and he was particularly helping like young people and and you and then he went into helping professional athletes um and i got put in touch with him and um he was the first person that i fully was able to open up to and like really accept that i needed help and I look back and I remember, I know for sure like if I wasn't the one that went for the help that, you know, and was aware that I finally really need to do something, I don't think I would have been open to listening to what he had to say to me, or even if I was, it wouldn't have landed with me. So it's that age old saying, like, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, because this information and these people are all around us. But in order to truly be helped by them, we need to accept within ourselves. And so just the things that he was teaching me about how our minds work, how our brain works, how we, you know, look for instant gratification, but this can create a cycle or we look to escape these feelings, but this can yeah. also add to that cycle. And the types of understanding and things that I needed to implement in my life in order to get out of this cycle and this rut, it honestly changed my life. And I can truly say 
I believe anyway, I don't ever think I would have explored and prioritized this knowledge in my life if I didn't deal go through those challenges. And I don't believe that's the case for everybody. I yeah. think people find things in different ways and different pathways in their life. So I'm just speaking about my own experience. Mm-hmm. I think I was so closed off to anything that it took quite deep suffering and pain in order to open up. Um, well, I think also, you you know, historically, you had always put the barriers up. So the shutters had gone up, but yeah. you were at your deepest, darkest point by the sounds of things. You couldn't put the shutters up anymore mm. um, because you didn't have the, you know, emotional energy to do so. Mm. They were literally fully down. And by having them fully down and reaching that rock bottom was actually, um, by the sounds of things, one of the best things that could have happened to you because then you were able to say, look, you know, pause and reflect and engage your executive function because you because that, you know, you'd, you'd run out of steam in the context of putting the shutters up and, and, then, and then reach out for help. And I also want to, you know, take my hats off to you um, because it's really difficult for men to reach out for support um, and for any man that is listening or anybody who has a you know a male friend colleague or whatever that's listening it's so hard and and the reason it's so hard for men often is because their brains are different to women's brains so you actually as a man have a much larger amygdala than women do so they have a you have a larger emotional center which is your fight flight freeze defensive rage part of the brain physically than a woman does so when men experience emotion it can um, often be much much more intense emotional experience than a woman does and you can kind of understand that from an evolutionary perspective because you historically men were hunters um, and women were the gatherers and the community community makers that's that's just how we've evolved and so you would have to have that fast emotional response to fight or flight to to ensure the survival of the species uh, and so when you get a, a a fight or flight emotion or an emotion that triggers you to want to fight or flight it can be so intense that you just don't know what to do with it and traditional society and going back to your comment about society doesn't allow you to fight it off as we may have done historically or to run it off or you know you, you have to, you are kind of conditioned to suppress it, yeah. which actually makes it worse because mm. it amplifies it. Um, it's like your your body will shout because your mind isn't listening. Yeah. Um, and so what, what was happening there for you is your body was shouting at you, like in, with rage, because you were expressing rage and anger, which is your outlet for mm. the emotion that you were experiencing that you'd not only suppressed you, you were trying to suppress in the context of your you're losing your dad but you'd had to suppress most of your life through your upbringing yeah. and your experiences at school so it kind of all comes to the surface and then it, it's like an explosion um that's very difficult to to control and very difficult to suppress and you know i can very much understand why you behave behave the way you did because that was your only outlet to, yeah. to 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 express yourself and yeah. it comes back to like having difficult children mm-hmm. um they're just expressing themselves in the way that they need to release that emotion and i you know often say to my daughter when she gets really angry and she wants to kick and punch and stuff just go run it off 
Mm. It's okay to be angry. <laughs> it's yeah. a really good emotion. <laughs> Just yeah. channel it in a positive way. Uh, uh, you know, channel it into something that's going to help you rather than something that's going to going to hurt you. So, you know, really, hats off to you there for for being able to reach out and and having that you know ability to do that without feeling that it was the wrong thing to do or that you didn't deserve yeah. to ask for help because mm. everybody deserves um, help and there's loads of people out there that can can support you yeah no i really appreciate it and, and it's really cool to kind of get an insight from you know your expert view as to how men are more physiologically uh i guess designed or or the, or the makeup of us to um you know react in those ways and 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 i think through all this and and then as well into my life and pure sport in this business I, I learned something about myself which is my first response when there's an issue is to take action and sometimes actually what you need to do is to stop and like really reflect on what the best course of action is and i think i, I feel it is quite a trait that can be shared by a lot of men um who maybe again i don't know because i'm not the expert but maybe in line with what you're saying there around the physiological makeup and the design of how we've evolved like maybe it has been our role in society to like you know go and get things done and take action and try to resolve issues and problems by action taking and often you know what i've learned is i'm too quick to take action and often that action that I take is not necessarily the re the best or the right action. Mm -hmm. So through these kind of challenges and difficulties, what I've been learning is, okay, I am inclined to like just dive in and take action based upon like my own feeling or emotion mm -hmm. rather than really analyzing what's the best course of action. And then often sometimes on, on reflection, I've learned no action was the best action. You know, like maybe responding to someone in a business context out of emotion or frustration mm -hmm. compounded the issue rather than being able to step back, reflect, look at it. Okay, do I need to respond to that right now? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe I need to let it sit for a while. But I, I don't think without that awareness uh, of, you know, how I operate and maybe some of that conditioning that I had to just jump in, uh, I wasn't able to do that. So mm -hmm. definitely you know, learning about how we operate and maybe how our minds operate and, you know, some of this conditioning and the physiological makeup of, of how we are helps us to evolve our outlook and way we operate. Yeah, I mean, the other big difference between men's brains and women's brains is, is men have more brain cells, but women's brains have more connections. With, so we can take time thinking about things a lot more because we have to use all the connections we have because we've got less brain cells so you know women often women can often ruminate a lot more than men whereas men you know with less connections but more brain cells you've got more resilience in terms of cognitive damage but you're going to when you make it when you ha have a decision and you, you're just going to make it because you don't have all of those different connections in order to give you the, all of the different options that a woman might have. And so it may be, although they don't, haven't scientifically proven this, but men are, men are actually four times more likely to commit suicide than women. And it's quite possible because of the fact that their brain structure is different. 
and actually once they make a decision they go with it whereas women debate about it a lot more just by virtue of how our, our brains are constructed so it, you know that importance of pausing and reflecting for a for a male brain is really key because your your circuitry is going to push you into go go mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah. and by making that taking that take 10 do a take 10 and count to 10 um you disengage your emotional brain which is your fight or flight brain which is what we we naturally work in for most of the time um and uh, and engage the executive functioning part of our brain um, which is much slower to come online because it's a newer part of our brain so it takes time for it to come online so especially if you've got ADD or ADHD um, is to give yourself that time to to allow it to engage and it needs to be in the right environment for it to engage particularly with ADD so yeah. really important so really thank you for sharing that that story um right. i'd love to know how how that evolved for you into uh, you know your sporting career and obviously you you had that really deep dark moment into um becoming the founder of of your own company pure sport yeah you know when i worked with um trevor who was the psychologist who, who really helped me it, it really was the springboard for like a new understanding um and i and i remember like it, I, it wasn't necessarily like a, like a spiritual enlightenment, but it was like an enlightenment. Like I realized there was a new way of life. Like I could, I learned for the first time, I could be content just with normal things. You know, I didn't need to be looking for like, only looking forward to like big rugby matches or new contracts or new things or big parties or, you know, whatever. It was like starting to understand like you can just, find peace and joy in everyday life and it's about understanding who you are and how life works and um you know understanding the design of of our mind and and how we work so that we can start to counteract some of that those negative cycles and implement new routines and habits and it honestly changed my life and it gave me a new outlook on my career as well and i managed to get a new contract get back into professional rugby mm -hmm. but with a new outlook it wasn't my my whole identity was no longer attached to it um and I, I managed to like enjoy it a lot more you know still had all the challenges of a professional sporting career um but i was much more resilient to it and much more open-minded i uh, managed to move over to the united kingdom from new zealand i mm -hmm. uh, got a contract here um, got my career back on track, was doing really well, played international rugby. My grandma's Scottish, so I rep represented Scotland. That was a hugely proud time for like me and my family and also a proud time because I'd managed to sort of get my life back on track mm -hmm. in a positive way. Um, but it was not just a reflection of the outcome, it was a reflection of like how I was operating in life as well and because I was a different person really, I mm -hmm. felt. And I actually went on to suffer a knee injury um, and it went on to be uh, quite a, um, what they call it, like it was a chronic knee injury. So uh, it was all the arthritis, all the uh, cartilage in my knee started to wear away. So I became very, very heavily reliant on painkillers 
and mm-hmm. um, cortisone injections. And again, like when you're in this career as a professional athlete, you 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 got to stay out there. You got to play. You're in this kind of environment that that's the biggest thing. And so filling yourself up with painkillers and injections, that's just part of it. Like you don't really blink an eyelid. But my trouble was it was ongoing because I had chronic pain. So mm-hmm. lots of when I was on six painkillers a day, I was getting a cortisone injection maybe every two to three months. This was just it. after probably about two years of operating like that, it became very clear that my health was taking a real hit. Um, even things like my energy levels, my sleep quality, my mood uh, was starting to be really affected by this. And that's what, again, and I do believe like the challenge I faced earlier in my career and in my life and the turnaround I had allowed me to question what I was doing and not just carry on on that path. And I really started to question it when I had this realization that like, this is not a good way to live, you know. And that got me delving into like looking at alternatives to painkillers and injections that weren't kind of the mainstream or available in professional sport at that time. And that led me to a real fascination with some of these natural products that were starting to come to the forefront in other industries. And um, that was CBD, which is an extract from the cannabis plant, which is completely legal. It doesn't get you high. It's non-addictive, but it has profound benefits in terms of pain relief, inflammation, uh, recovery, uh, also like things like sleep quality and stress. So I became really interested and fascinated in in that and also um, mushroom supplements. So things like lion's mane um, have some amazing studies around how they can potentially repair neural pathways in the brain. uh, And inflammation and immune system support as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, And I was just blown away by this world because I never knew about it. You know, all I knew was painkillers, injections, and the only supplements we were really aligned with at that time was like protein powder and creatine yeah so which isn't like, much oh. in the in the context of nootropics and uh yeah. you know cu- current supplementation that we recommend in the in the context of optimal performance yeah absolutely and again like i don't know i just was so fascinated by it and um i did also learn something about myself at that time because i started to share this with the guys around me like hey like this have you heard of this supplement or this and there wasn't like that much interest they were more just interested in what the doctor at the team wanted to say to them and i was like i didn't mind but i was like okay like am i diff- like why do i find this stuff so interesting but then i just realized that i don't know i was really passionate about it and i think it was aligned to my learning of how yeah. suffered so much in life before and i found there was a new way to look at life and i think that served has served me in maybe all walks of life going forward because i now like to question things and explore other avenues and find out what it, Yes, this might be the mainstream view, but is there other views? And I remember I waited till the off season because we're drug tested and we're only meant to use cert, um, products that are certified under like the regulations for drug testing. Informed testers. sport is the key yeah. one, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And there was none of these CBD or mushroom products that were certified. So I waited till the off season, I started using them. And again, my knee is, uh, it's a chronic knee injury that's I've got no cartilage so there was not going to ever be a cure for my knee other than maybe mm-hmm. a knee replacement later on in life but for the first time I was able to function and train in, in a way that you know I was with the painkillers but I was able to do it for the first time in years without painkillers mm-hmm. and once I got to maybe like three weeks down the line of no painkillers in my system for the first time in years I, it was almost like a fog was like lifting but it, but I didn't. It was like I didn't even know that fog was there because it had become the norm to me, 
And when this fog lifted, I was like more energized, more positive. I was sleeping better. My gut health was better. And I was just like, holy shit, like, I can't go back to a life of painkillers every single day again. And, so and that, just, just on painkillers, you know, just if you start with the traditional ones like paracetamol and ibuprofen, ibuprofen can be really damaging long term and even short term on your on your stomach you know, can cause stomach ulcers and, and damaging to your gut health. And also it's not it's not good for your um, cognitive performance either when you when you take it long term. So, you know, the traditional medical route of injection and pain relief, it is very going back to the peak performance, trying to get you to a performance level that's not sustainable yeah, yeah. Um, for, for your long term health. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really important that, you know, listen to your doctor, but also don't be close to alternative solutions because mm. they are out there. And yeah. there are functional medicine doctors who are much more proficient um, functional medicine practitioners like myself, who, mm. who you know, much more open minded about the alternatives to um, to traditional pain relief mm. uh, yeah. and medication that's actually going to sustain you over the long term. So I'd love to know more about um, what led you into pure sport. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a key point that you make, because I think in that peak performance world of sport where you're so reliant on your body, so you just do whatever it takes and painkillers is part of that. Unfortunately, that type of perspective has gone on out into just everyday society. You know, like it's what I call the quick fix mentality. It's, yeah. We're in pain or you can't sleep. We we have this conditioning now that's called like, oh, you just take a pill for that, you know, and these are pharmaceutical pills that aren't designed to be taken ongoingly. They're designed to be utilized when you really need them for a short period of time. Or and, or they're designed to they're designed to do a quick fix, but actually knowingly will cause you some addiction issues long term because yeah. they will change your the biochemistry within your cells that mean that your cells become dependent on them. And that is definitely not what you want over the long term, particularly in the context of uh, mental health medication. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like this perspective is rife in the world at the moment, like that, that quick fix culture. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, that experience of getting out of that and 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 the seeing the power of these um you know cbd and the mushrooms and the nootropics i was just blown away and i was so excited i, I was like just i don't know i was so so excited about it and i went to my team doctor at the start of that pre-season when we went back in and i said oh hey i've been taking these products I've done and I'd done a huge amount of due diligence before I went back because I knew they weren't certified for sport. So I knew I was going to have a bit of a like challenge there. But I had actually, you know, as a drug test athlete, you have direct access to World Anti-Doping who set all the rules and do all the testing and they want to be able to help you to inform you to make the right decisions. Um, so I, I'd, I'd spent time, lots of time on calls with them, lots of emails. I'd spoken to lots of the providers of the companies that products I was using, had lab reports, and I had a really clear understanding of the risks involved for myself as a drug test athlete. Mm -hmm. And I've come to feel very secure in my decision that I was okay. And I shared all this information with the team doctor. And he, he said, oh, well, I've got to speak to the club and find out if, what, what they say. 
and they came back and I was really shocked. I knew it was going to be hard work, but I didn't think it would be this type of response. But they just, they pretty much said, you can't take it. And if you do, you're in breach of your contract. So don't take it. And so I was, again, it sort of took me back to those days when I was that kid in school where I felt like, hold on, mate. I'm not trying to do bad here. Like I, I want to do good, but I need your support too. You know, like, and I felt so hard done by, um, mm-hmm. and and really frustrated. And I remember going away, being like, "Holy shit, I can't go back to painkillers. I can't." Like, and I and I it was probably like two weeks down the line. I remember sitting in this cafe and one of my days off having a coffee, and I just had this idea. I was like, "Man, why don't you make? Why don't you make the world's first range of these products that are certified?" And it was one of those ones that like ignorance was bliss because I didn't realize how challenging it was going to be. And I didn't realize what, uh, how hard growing a business was, and especially in an industry where everything was so new and there were so many uphill battles. But I just did it. And I, I was like, I was like, I'm just going to find a way. And I, the, the, the first big hurdle was convincing my wife that um, all of our hard-earned savings, it was a good idea to invest into the, the development of these products. Um, and eventually I threw my passion and uh, energy about this about what this could do um she got on board with it um and I remember I actually said to myself like oh I didn't say this to my wife I, I said it to myself I said well people invest so much money in university like for, you know hundreds tens and hundreds of thousands I'm gonna invest this money into this business and this opportunity and it could succeed like beyond my dreams. But if it doesn't, I'm going to make sure this is my like university. I'm going to learn so much that's going to make this investment. I can't lose. If, if yeah. the, even if the business doesn't succeed, I'm going to come out the other side like with an evolved skill set, knowledge, experience, expertise that will go on to make that investment, you know, well worth it no matter what. I happens. love that. I love that. I've never heard anybody say that, but that's such a brilliant, you know, outlook to take when you, you know, when you start your own business and I have my own business, it's so hard. It's so so hard and so costly um, Mm. to invest and you are learning so much, so many new skills that you, you know, you never wouldn't even think necessary uh, when you start your business that many people who are in the, you know, um, corporate space will never come into contact with um, because they just, you have to be an entrepreneur to experience it. Um, And I love that you There's no such thing as security when you're you're running, growing your own business, like everything's always on the line, you know, and people in corporate jobs or in, in employment roles, you know, most likely they can go into another role in another company um, and yeah, it's not the be all and end all of life if your business fails, but it's a big like loss, you know, and um, there is huge risk there. But I don't know, I think like you said there, it takes a certain type of mindset and risk taker to delve in, jump into it. And um, I, I do think my experiences in school and my later on in life, my questioning of that system to say, well, I, I don't think I was a failure or I was stupid. Mm-hmm. I don't, I just don't think that I was kind of, or there was the understanding from myself or the system that allowed me to flourish. 
um, and, and almost having that almost chip on my shoulder of, no, I can do something like really meaningful uh, with my, my intellect and my energy and my passion to bring something to life. It was almost like, I'm going to show them. Or, and it wasn't even them as anyone. And it was more, I'm going to show myself. You know, yeah, um, which comes back to you know, your switch when your father passed away and you had that need to ask for help. Is before that, you talked about extrinsic, so external motivation, and actually on that pivot point that you experienced, it now became much more intrinsic. So you had the internal, you know, power that you tapped into that, that was untouched, as it were. And you realise that you intrinsically you could motivate yourself and, and you found yourself on that on that journey. And, you know, the fact that you have ADD is actually a superpower in the context of being an entrepreneur because your ADD type people are much more willing to take risks um, and they can deal with chaos uh, and complexity um, than people who aren't ADD. Yeah. Um, just because that's how their brain is it, it, it operates. Yeah, and and I think as well to all my neuro fellow neurodiverse characters out there, um, it, you definitely it's so worthwhile just exploring and really trying to gain a really deep understanding of how our minds are different, and mm -hmm. um, because implementing some routines and habits and small disciplines that really help get the best out of you know um the my functions and stay productive and be less chaotic uh when it, it's needed to be um is, is a is a great thing to to help you and also to understand the strengths that you have you know like it's it's amazing when you actually gain clarity on what the strengths of your, your neurodiversity are and that you can really lean into them. And I, in meetings and stuff with people who, you know, are now within my business, like I've got a commercial director who's hugely experienced. I've got a COO whose mind works very, very differently than mine and very, very intelligent. And we're talking about different issues and things that we're trying to move through within the business. And, I'll often say something of a perspective on a, a challenge or an issue that seems to me so obvious and they'll both be like, oh, shit, I didn't think of that. I, yeah. And, and what we must realise is we can see things in a different way and we shouldn't be afraid to express those views and, um, and all perspectives that might seem so normal to us. To others, they're, they're, they're a different way of looking at things. And so it's so important to try and understand. I truly agree that it is a superpower. Um, and for so long, the majority of people have probably felt the opposite of that. And now it's time to empower yourself with the knowledge as to what makes you unique and what your strengths are and utilize them and then find ways and habits to overcome some of the inevitable like, challenges that we have as well. And actually, I, you know, I think that's so important. And also, when you started the conversation and talked about your childhood, you talked about the fact that you always were asking the why. Why do we have to do it this way? And actually, that also was your superpower. 
because you dared to do it differently. You asked, why do we have to stick with the status quo? Why can't we do this differently? Um, and I'm willing to buck the buck the trend. Um, and, and therein, you know, you founded your company. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if you if you'd suppress that, if you you know if you'd been told to turn off your why, <laughs> questioning in your mind, then then you wouldn't be where you are today. So. You know, we often think that we have to sh pigeonhole people into a certain type of person. But actually, what we need to be doing is allowing people to blossom and grow. And, and you have to put them in the right soil, the right yeah. fertilizer to, yeah. to allow them to grow. Yeah. You can't right. put a rose in, a, in an orchid uh, fertilizer. It's not going to work. So. No, absolutely. And that's, that's why I think... What you're doing, Ruth, with your podcast and what you share and having these types of conversations is so hugely powerful because, I mean, my hope is, and the reason I like to be open about my experiences, because I hope if it reaches one or two people that they're like, holy heck, like, I, I can relate to that, but I never considered it in that way. Yeah. Um, and it can just open up one question and maybe one Google of something and one research or one list podcast or one YouTube clip that might open up a whole new way of life to you, uh, then that's why I think these conversations, what you're doing, are, are really, really helpful. Oh, thank you. And I, I'd love to know what one piece of advice would you give to, I'm going to ask you two questions now. What one piece of advice would you give to anyone who has been through a similar journey to you where they've, you know, maybe they're going through the, it at the moment, they're in their teens and they're feeling like they're not enough, uh, they're struggling with attention and focus, um, they're a bit disruptive in class. What what would your advice be, be to those kids out there? Yeah, my advice would be like really simplify it, bring it back to one day at a time. Mm -hmm. and, and bring focus into the things in your day that bring you peace and feelings of fulfillment. And those are often the most simple things, you know. Um, and, and, you know, that's like going out for a run or exercising or that time in the morning before you go off to school or work or university where you've got 20 minutes to yourself to have your cup of coffee or tea. Um, like really try to find the presence and uh, feeling of like peace in those moments and then know that that peace and presence is available to you all at any time no matter what challenges life throws at you um, because and the reason I emphasize that is because I really believe that we're all looking for that feeling of like being okay mm -hmm. and feeling peace but the world teaches us to look for it in things or outcomes or, you know, perspectives of others. And actually, if we realize that it's available to us and, and, you know, those quiet moments, then we can keep referring back to it because life is going to be really challenging for all of us, no matter who you are in life, whether things are all smooth sailing and you're excelling, like life will, the most inevitable thing about life is going to throw some challenges at you loss of loved one loss of loved ones some form of failure in life uh some type of trauma and and i don't say that to sound like negative or morbid it's inevitable and 
we all need to be able to equip ourselves with the knowledge that we've got what it takes to navigate it. So my advice to the youngsters who are struggling, you're going through something that's going to serve you. So if you can look at it in a way, of, this might be tough. But if I can find peace in these moments and a way to feel okay within myself, it's going to serve me in life hugely as I grow. Mm, I love that. And I, I love the fact that you is focused on how it can help them grow and and taking that moment to pause and reflect and and to understand the learning within that moment as well um to to not get stuck on the automatic thoughts that we often have rumbling around in our mind but focus on what can i learn from this and how can i use this to leverage my my growth going forward is is so important and and for parents out there who are struggling with their children what would your advice be to any parents or maybe people in business who um you know are trying to get their head around the complexities of neuro neurodivergent people Mm. in their workplace or at home it's tough because i'm not a parent of of not had children not with children but from my experience speaking from me like the growing up side um I do think like really engaged communication and engaging with the child like on a level that they're equal with you, but but still with that sense of like authority and discipline. But I think that can come from a place of like an equal playing field because naturally you do have that authority and discipline because you are the parent. I think a lot of times where um, I look back, where I actually got into mo- mo- most trouble was when an adult was dealing with me in a way of uh, like like they were almost like bickering with me. You know, they didn't come from a place of presence of knowing that they were the authoritative figure. But, but I think there's a difference between like coming with authority, like looking down on someone, but mm-hmm. coming with authority on a level playing field in your mm-hmm. communications. I, I think that is the best way to get like a resistant child to kind of open up and hear what you've got to say. Because because I remember when a teacher or, or um, an adult would come to me on that level, I would respect them. And then it would, I would flip the switch of like, oh, I, I want, I want to do well by them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when they would come from a like, you know, looking down and pointing down and from that regard, I'll be like, oh, well, I'm just going to come, I'm going to push back at you, you know. Uh, so that would be my biggest thing. And as well, like to both parents and kids, from my view, like, like this journey is a, it's a long, it's a pretty long journey. Like kids don't, shouldn't be expected to have everything figured out and neither should parents. But as long as you're both willing to understand that it's an ongoing journey, there's going to be a lot of failures along the way. But like a, a failure isn't final. You know, like, I, I, honestly, the path I was on in school, like, I, I, if I, yeah, like, majority of kids in my neighbourhood who were carrying on the way I did, they ended up in gangs or in jail. Um, mm-hmm. And but then there are many others who shared that path with me who have gone on to live really nice lives. And so it's not no failure or no experience is final. You know, it's how can we evolve? How can we learn? How can we take something out of this to better ourselves and our understanding um that would be my biggest advice yeah great piece of advice and failure isn't final like you said and that it's a stepping stone to growth it's not the opposite um Mm. of success it's an integral part of it and and i love the fact that you also mentioned like 
it's you know to have a level playing field not I can't remember who who did the quote but um the only time you should look down on someone is when you're helping them up mm. um is is really important is to meet meet kids where they're at um yeah. and treat yeah. them with respect yeah and I, I just, so there's a kid craving like I wanted my dad or family members or adults to ask me questions because it was so hard for me to try to verbalize like like I I wanted them to in a loving way to like help me communicate um, and ask me things about challenging topics or subjects that I felt I needed to express that I, I didn't know how so almost like taking the lead on the communication and knowing that it's tough for a child to bring up hard topics or difficult things and that they need your loving guidance to help express things that should be communicated. Yeah, great advice. And, you know, especially on the expressing um, themselves because it's so important that we give people that opportunity to express mm. how they're feeling, what they're feeling or what they're thinking um, yeah. because that's obviously the root in often the route into unraveling the problem and helping them find their own solution to it um, mm. rather than the telling them what to do yeah. which yeah. might not serve yeah. them so thank you yeah. for that Grace and it's been a fascinating conversation I think we could talk for hours on this and I'm so deeply grateful that you've been willing to share your story and be open and vulnerable about it particularly you know from a, a, a male perspective it's often so difficult to to express those emotions and tell your story openly and honestly so I do really appreciate that how can people get hold of you and learn more about pure sport about what you do connect with you find out more about the supplements that you have in the nootropics and so on yeah um i think the best way we use instagram a lot um my own instagram is grace and john hart without an h uh in the john and then pure sports just at pure sport one word and then the pure sport website is puresport.co that's co um but yeah feel free on the website there's an email address to get in touch with us and you can email through there to me or drop me a message um but i just love sharing the conversation and sharing the journey and to me honestly pure sport is a vehicle to express the learnings that I've had in my life, but I'm still having, you know, and I want to just, I think, you know, what you're doing is an amazing with this podcast, um, but, and, and different people connect to kind of opening their minds up in different ways. You know, some people might not be inclined to directly come straight to a podcast like yours, um, but they need other kind of pathways. And I see, I see pure sport as products that can truly help people, but it's also a gateway to like opening up a mindset to kind of evolve how we're living our lives and contribute contributing to society and so yeah I, I just love to have share the conversation so anyone can reach out to me and again I thanks for your kind words Ruth and thanks for having me on and you're an amazing interviewer you made it easy for me to open up and I think it's amazing what you're doing and with this podcast and your work and your community uh, to kind of yeah move forward and help us all get be at our best. Oh, no, you're most welcome, Graham. Um, thank you so much for the kind words back to yourself. And I love to stay connected. And and uh, I think we've both got very similar missions. So I'm looking forward to, to further conversations. Remember, one, this show is all about brain health, unchaining your pain. You're not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to optimise it and get the best out of your engine of life. 
and Graham Rosenhart has kindly been here to show us how. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to like and share this episode and leave a review on my website or on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for opportunities to optimise your brain health or unchain your pain from a past trauma, make sure you visit my website www.ruthmaryallen.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout to get 10% off all programs. And always remember, you are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. You have the power to unchain your pain and optimize your brain power and performance so that you can win back energy and time doing what you love.